Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with John Bogdasarian. How you doing, man? I'm good, RJ. How are you? Oh man, uh, just uh, trying to keep afloat here in quarantine yeah. land over here. The interesting times nowadays. So appreciate yeah. you taking the time to sit down with us and, and do this interview. Uh, for the, the listeners that don't know who you are, give a brief introduction of what it is that you do in real estate. Well, um, let's see. So brief introduction. Um, I started buying uh, single family homes for myself back in the 90s. Uh, that morphed into doing some larger projects, some development deals. In um, 2005, I took on some investors and bought a portfolio of student housing in South Bend that housed about 480 Notre Dame students. Awesome. Sold that in 2007, which was fortunate timing. Right. Um, the market kind of imploded, so we didn't do much in 2008. And then um, really started buying aggressively in 2009. I think I had nine investors in January of 2009 in, 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 a, in a kind of a fun type structure, really like a private non-traded REIT type format. Um, and we built that to, you know, a few million square feet of industrial office buildings, things like that with about 300 or so accredited investors in it. And from there now, we've really morphed into more of a private equity firm where we have really thousands of uh, potential investors on our list. And we have probably around 400 active right now um, that participate in all kinds of deals where we just put up the money for ground up development projects, acquisitions. Uh, we'll do value add deals, you know, just anything where it's fun for us to do we feel like it's helping in some way with the economy right. or you know whatever and 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 it's going to make a little money that's that's kind of our uh, our main proposition so yeah sitting here at home um <laughs> which is rare for me you right. know i'm dressed up today you know <laughs> or put on a shirt i've been working in like a robe it's been there you go cool, there you actually, go but so um, let, let's go back to the, the beginning, because I think a, yeah. the majority of our listeners are going to be single family, you know, either flippers, landlords, wholesalers, whatever. Sure. That's how you got started. Oh, what yeah. made you make the transition from single family to going, it seems like if I followed that correctly, you kind of went from single family to industrial pretty quickly. What, what made that transition? What, what caused you? Well, to I mean, that was, that, that took time. I mean, it, it was, um, I was never really, uh, I, I like to say I'm really situationally driven. I'm not really asset specific or, you know, uh, geographically driven. I'm just kind of a deal junkie. So, okay. you know, for me, there's certain components that make a deal work, right? You've got, it's got to work for everybody. Um, you know, I, I came across a portfolio of 16 single family homes when I was 28 years old. I was a residential real estate agent. I didn't have any money you know, starting out with zero is tough. Um, I had, uh, you know, learned a lot from doing a lot of residential real estate transactions. I think it was my third year in the business in 2008. I, I did 
I did about 50 transactions my first year. I did 57 my first year, 83 my second year, and over 100 real estate residential transactions in my third year. And so I was doing a lot of volume and it was an incredible learning experience. And that was right around the time the whole Rich Dad, Poor Dad book came out. Mm -hmm. And I met Robert Kiyosaki at a, at a seminar who's a, uh, if you haven't met him, a very interesting person, but um, you know, it, it was, it was really an exciting time in this whole single family investment thing. And so I found this portfolio of 16 single family homes, one of my favorite deals I ever did. Um, I got a bank to loan me 80% of the purchase price. Um, they required a, a signature with someone of some net worth. So I brought my dad in who's a doctor and said, dad, will you sign on this uh, loan? Uh, you don't even have to put any money in and I'll give you half the deal. And I put a pack together and showed him how much money we were going to make. And he did the dumbest thing, you know, any dad could do. He guaranteed debt for his son, which is, you know, <laughs> don't do that. But, um, and, and then I had the seller take a 20% second. And then I got a, a, a $200,000 credit for repairs and stuff for these houses to, you know, stock kind of a reserve fund. And I got a 3% commission. So we got to the closing table and my dad showed up and signed the papers. And we saw that our entity, the LLC I created, um, was getting a check back for, you know, like 180 grand or something. And I was getting a real estate check and he's like, Hey, when's the next one? You know, can we do another <laughs> one of these? Right. And, um, but you know, so those, I was lucky though, you know, I mean, you don't want to go into something 100% leverage. We would never do that now, but right. I was lucky. I hit the market. Well, we had a, a run up from 98 all the way to 2007. I was able to sell some along the way. I was able to do improvements and fix, fix ups and not have to feed them, but they didn't make a lot of money. You know, um, what I found out with single family homes is it's really an appreciation play. You're, you know, You've got, you've got no economy of scale, right? You have one roof over one unit as opposed to apartments where you have one roof over sometimes four units stacked. So there's, uh, and then I, I learned a lesson by trying to go up to smaller apartment communities. You know, I tried to graduate to like a six unit or an eight unit. And then I realized that's even worse because, it, you know, you've got to pay a maintenance man and you don't, you know, you can't employ him for full time. Right. And you got guys, you know, it's constantly hard to keep people employed. So so then we got to like, okay, we really need to do 200 units or more. And by the time I got there, you know, cap rates had compressed to, you know, seven, eight. And I thought, this is crazy. You're never going to, you know, they have nowhere to go but up. And of course, you know, now they're at like five or whatever. Right. But, but, you know, I, I, I won't make that bet. You know, um, Sam Zell told me once, he said, you know, the pendulum swings at a 10 cap. He's like, if you're you know, if you can buy it at an 11, you're fine. If you can buy it at 10, you're probably fine. But he said it always swings around at a 10 cap. And this was, of course, you know, whatever, how old am I now? This is over 20 years ago, you know, right. so maybe it now swings at an eight cap. I don't know. But um, the reality is that single family transaction and dealing with those properties and that whole process, um, what I discovered was if you don't hit the market timing just right, yeah, your cash flow will sustain you. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. We, I, I sold a number of them for, for way more than I paid for them. Um, because on an income value, I knew what they were worth. And then, you know, single family home values went way high. And I was mm. like, well, gosh, you know, why would I renew the rent to this guy for 1500 bucks a month when I got somebody who's going to come and pay me $200,000 for this house, you know, and I think it's worth a hundred grand based on income, right. you know, for example. And so, 
you know, so I sold a number of them. And then um, when the market tanked in, and the credit markets froze in 2007 and 2008 became a really bad year, um, I bought back, uh, I was buying houses 10 years later after I got a great deal. I mean, a great deal on 16 houses in, two, in 98. In 2008, I was buying the exact same houses for 50 cents of what I paid for them on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar from what I paid for them 10 years earlier. And, and so, you know, knowing the value and knowing what they are allowed me to say, hey, the world's coming to an end. You know, I know the value of these things. I know what I can lease them for. And of course, people were getting foreclosed on and they needed a place to live. Right. So they, you know, get, get right back into these homes and, and I had no problem renting them. And so, you know, I, I finally in 2017 sold all my single family homes. Um, I just one day, you know, said, Hey, the market's recovered enough. I, I, I you know, I kind of half regret it because they're worth more now than they were then, of course, right. but the guy who bought them is doing well. And the reality is I never saw the homes. I, by that time I had a manager in place. I had a full-time maintenance person. I never, you know, even went there. I, I couldn't even tell you where they were, but you know, a guy came along and wanted to buy them all and, and we made a good deal. And it was like, I did well on it. He's going to do well on it. You know, good deal. Time to move on. Um, I want to ask you a question about how you structured that deal because say there's newer people listening right now, maybe they've never purchased a portfolio. You were willing to give away 50% of the equity to your father for guaranteeing that loan. Did you ever regret that decision or do you look back on it and you're, you're happy you gave away that much equity? Well, I would probably, you know, I, I would say, no, I one, I've never regretted it. Um, because the money's in the family. So what difference right. does it make? It's going to probably come to me anyway, but that's um, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I mean, my dad has been, you know, such an amazing example for, for me to live by. I mean, he's, he's an ear, nose and throat physician. Um, certainly a lot of people think doctors are really rich. I, I get that, but you know, we, we were well provided for, I was given every opportunity to, you know, I, I didn't graduate with student debt and, you know, he, he paid for stuff, but, but the rule was when you're done with school, you're on your own. And, um, and, and the reality is, is, you know, he has a, a good retirement now and, and he has some money, but like a, an event like this coronavirus thing right now, I mean, right. heck, he was probably taking a 30, 40% loss. You know, it's like, so when you're, when you work that hard at a profession and his reputation in the community is amazing. I mean, it's very, very hard to live up to that standard. So I try and err on the side of generosity with investors, with anybody that I'm doing deals with. I always want to be seen as, um, you know, more generous than that. So, so I, I wouldn't regret it, whether it was him or anybody for that matter. Um, I think the, the fact that it's that it's him also, I mean, I, I was consciously deciding that I didn't want to support my parents in retirement when I was 28 years old. I mean, mm -hmm. I was consciously making a decision saying, Dad, you're a great doctor, but you have no idea what you're doing investing wise. And it's all about passive income. Right. So the whole strategy for this portfolio was to put these homes on a 20 year AM, put all the money back into them as we go. We don't need it. He's still working. I'm so I'm just starting out in life. And so but at the end of 20 years, when he's retired and when I'm 50 years old or I was 47 at the time, I guess, these homes are 48. I was, these homes are paid for. And, you know, I can live on $10,000 a month if I have to, you know, push right. comes to shove, you know, I'll cut some expenses and live on 10,000 a month and he will too. 
And, you know, so, and that'll support, you know, quite a nice old folks home or, you know, at least a decent place these days. And, um, you know, so I was kind of making that conscious decision and then not until I had other vehicles that I could take that equity from and replace it. Like that entity itself still exists. It still exists. Boggs Properties LLC still exists. It just doesn't hold those houses. We sold those houses. Now it's worth more. It's invested in, you know, office buildings and industrial buildings and other things. And it's got great passive income and we distribute monthly from it. And, you know, it supplements their income. And, you know, we never, we don't need the principal. So, that was kind of a, a, a protective avenue. Well, well, half of it's them, you, you know. I love how you, said you always err on the side of generosity. Um, <laughs> I've never said it that way, but I, but I have said that before. I remember it was the second ever podcast that I did as a guest. And we were probably two and a half years into our investing career. And uh, Don Costa was interviewing me and, and he asked me a question. He said, how are you raising private capital right now? Because you don't really have that long of a track record. And I just remember I was like, cause I'm willing to pay my investors more than other people are, you know I mean? Yeah. Like you're saying, you know, I was like, Hey, I don't have the track record, but Hey, if you're willing <clears> to take a risk on me knowing who I am as a person and I'm willing to pay you more money than other investors, are, are you willing to take a risk with me? Maybe on just one project or, or something along those lines. And, and that's how we were able to raise our capital um, early on in the game. So I, I love that you brought that up because it's been a while since I've heard somebody else say that. Um, yeah, you know, it's that, that's what, and, and frankly, that's the same thing that allowed us to go from, um, you know, nine investors to 400 very, right. very fast without, you know, trying that hard. I mean, I used to get on the phone and make and call them all every deal you know, now we send everything by email. Like literally two weeks ago, I put out a deal to raise $19 million and it was fully subscribed in seven days. And I didn't have to call anybody. I probably only got five calls, you know, asking questions about it. People were just like, I'll take this many, I'll take this many. And you know, we had, these are $250,000 shares now, you know? Um, So, you know, the main questions we got was, will you cut a share in half or, can I do a quarter share? Cause that's what I have rattling around right now, you know, things like that. But they don't ask questions about the deal because they're not investing in the deal. They're investing in the person right. and, and they're investing in somebody who's taken good care of them in the past. And that's actually what the, the recent book I just put out called do the work once get paid forever. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. Um, it's basically a book written for people looking to invest in real estate who don't want to, actually do the work they want you the passive investor right and the whole premise of the book is look i don't care what deal rj sends you don't ask questions about the deal rj's sending you ask questions about rj rj what what skin do you have in the game what's your risk what how why would you stay attached to this deal if it's not going well you know i just certainly don't want to step in and deal with it and then you know it also gives some advice to would-be syndicators and says like hey you know make sure you're not just scrambling and begging for money, you know, do it on your terms. Cause you'd rather say no to that guy who wants to armchair quarterback your deal. One investor can be, you know, way more problematic, uh, you know, cause that's the one you're going to hear from. And right. so that's your input, right? Like I have 
I have 300 investors in a very successful portfolio, but yet I had two of them bugging me to sell, 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 sell. And so I think every investor wants to sell the portfolio. Right. And I'm like, ah, you know, and then I realized, no, it's just these two. And I buy them out and they're gone. And now I'm back to running a very good portfolio that's making a lot of money, you know, things like that. Um, it, it's funny you bring that up because I, I think that's something that is not discussed frequently enough. At least it's not in my world where the relationship that you have with your private capital is, is vitally important to your success as an individual and as the operator, just mentally, you know, the conversations that you have, like you said, you know, these two were telling you to sell, sell, sell. You're thinking 298 other people are frustrated and wanting you to sell. And that wasn't the case. And you know, for, for me on the single family side, smaller multifamily side, I have to have these conversations with our investors regularly. And look, quite frankly, 2019, we had some deals that didn't go the way we wanted them to go. And, and I had to have those conversations with my investors where I'm like, hey, remember, you didn't invest in the deal you invested in RJ. And this is how I'm going to make this right. You're getting paid every dollar that you're going to get paid. And because we had a good relationship with those people, we were able to continue to keep going. And I had my sanity. Um, if I didn't have a good relationship with them and I didn't know who they were, um, I can only imagine how those conversations could have gone sour and how miserable my life as an operator would have been with them badgering me about what I needed to do better as an operator. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, for the people that are listening and say maybe they want to go this more of a commercial route that you have gone into, what are some of the steps that they can take to to make that leap from single family to the commercial side of things? Well, I, I think, you, you know, timing is critical on that front because, um, you know, we stepped into doing some pretty sizable deals right off the bat, um, probably doing things we shouldn't be doing. You know, I didn't really you know, have any idea what I was doing, to be honest, I, mean, I did, but you know, I kind of thought, oh, same as single family homes, but really, you know, um, it's, it's not that different. All the same, the principles are the same, right? So like, if you got people out there that are buying single family home rentals, they know that when they look at something listed by a broker, and that broker represents that the only expenses you're ever going to have, our taxes and insurance and the rest of it is your NOI. You know, that's how they get represented. Right? right. And that's a little crap. We all know that. I mean, it's, you know, 200 bucks a month. You got to put aside on a single family home for just whatever. That's a right. minimum, you know, it's like crazy. And so when you, it's the same thing for an office building. It's the same thing for an industrial building. The brokers will represent these deals and the reserves will be too thin. The, you know, you won't even factor in things like, you know, uh, tenant commissions or, or tenant improvements and leasing commissions. You, you know, there's, there's, and then typically on most of these buildings, you know, if you lose one tenant, you could be, you know, 25 or up to hundred percent vacant. I and mean, we have a lot of buildings that are single tenant, one tenant's right. gone. And we have a building right now that has 4 million of debt on it. That's sitting hundred percent vacant and we still mm -hmm. have to make payments. You know, right. what are you going to do? Um, it just so happens it sits in a portfolio with, you know, how many of the millions of square feet that are full. So it's, it, we can withstand it. Right. So you have to build the portfolio to withstand that pain and you've got to, you've got to treat it. It's all the same as single family, but 
you have to know those numbers, right? So you have to get with somebody experienced and you have to learn like what is the right amount of money to have on the sidelines for like a multi-tenant office buildings because, uh, um, and the way to do that is obviously when you're buying something, just ask for, you know, part of your due diligence is the past three years, tax returns, operating statements, and, 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 uh, you know, capital expenditures. And cause this is what everybody will do. This is so great. You know, the brokers that I love this part, this is my favorite brokers will always say, Oh, the seller spent, you know, $2 million on this 200,000 square foot building in the last three years alone, you'll never have to do CapEx again. And I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, <laughs> this guy spent in half a million bucks. There's, there's $666,000 a year, $3 a square foot, 333 a foot on this building, you know, for, for three years in a row. And you're telling me I'm never going to have to spend right. any money again. You're insane. You know, that's not how it works. Yeah. So like on office buildings, you know, we put two bucks a square foot across the portfolio as our reserve number on, on office. And frankly, that's, that's what it's going to cost you, you know, and it depends on the building, the age, the quality, everything, just like single family homes, you know, right. uh, I owned uh, a number of section eight properties at one point in time, you know, the wear and tear on those is a lot different than like, say, a single family home where someone's paying you 3000 a month in rent. Mm-hmm. Um, I own condos now, actually. Um, uh, we just did a, um, and finding the opportunities a little different as well. Um, I loved residential sales because as a broker, I was just so plugged in. I could find these opportunities. I could buy these single family homes. I could, you know, figure things out and, um, you know, you just do it. I, I, I mean, the reality is you just do it. So if you want to go from single family and you want to graduate and do bigger stuff, you just start looking. It's just, you shop, shop, shop. You're always looking, you know, and I think a lot of people, um, fall into one of two categories with this. Um, you know, especially on the development side of things. Um, 90% of the people I come across, they really, really are passionate about, you know, what they're building, the highest and best use for that area, that project that's going to take two or three years. They're really into that. I'm not. I mean, that's just not me. I, I hate development. I, I'd be perfectly honest with you. I did development from start to finish and I cannot stand it. Like I don't like township meetings. Right. I don't, you know, it's just it's too slow. It drives me crazy. But if you have a project and you're that passionate guy who loves putting it together and you've got the land locked up, you've got the construction estimates, you've got a GMP contract, you're ready to go. You're shovel ready and you need the money. I'm the guy to write the deal and put up the money. I just don't right. want to run the deal. You know, so so that's what we do now. Um, See, I think that's important for people to understand. Like what well, you just said, you like to run the deal, right? So yesterday I was listening to my friend April Crossley out of, out of Pennsylvania. She was talking about raising money for private, private money for single family, either rental properties, flips, whatever. You know, she was just talking about raising private capital. And then she brought up that she is private money on some larger multifamily deals. Why? Because that's not her expertise. But guess what? Because she's invested in this, she gets to watch an operator that she trusts and learns how they handle these different situations. And she gets to see the firsthand, the the back-end operation of this operator. And I think that's the best route to go is, hey, if you're in single family and you want to move on to something bigger and better, find someone that you trust, like John, 
and and bring money to him and watch how he handles things. And after two, three, four deals of watching that, hey, if you want to decide to become the operator, that's on you. But just watch how this operation actually goes down because, yeah, it is the same thing, but there's still a lot of – I mean, even like you said, man, the transition from single family to small multifamily, I mean, that's a learning curve in and of itself. You know, I mean, you you just start learning things a little bit different um, every time you, you try to scale on any level. Um, kind of want to transition the conversation a little bit uh, I, because I think it's, it's, you know, I asked you before, hey, is it okay if we talk about this? It's kind of the elephant in the room that everybody's talking about right now with what's going on with the coronavirus. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about it? What are you seeing on your end? How is it impacting your business and, and just – you know, where do you think this is going to take us? Yeah, I mean, Armageddon, ah, you know, <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, we're just starting to deal with tenant um, tenant requests for some type of rent relief or rent abatement or various things like that. Um, right. We've had to pivot and, and basically put a number of deals we were in the middle of on the shelf and say, hey, you know, we've got to focus on what we're doing right now. We have um, $80 million of our portfolio right now is under contract for sale. We were in the middle of selling a number of assets. We, you know, one of them is supposed to close next week. There's actually a conference call going on with my team right now with the buyer about it because their banks uh, having a hard time closing because the title company here in Michigan, or I'm sorry, their title company in LA um, is worried that they won't be able to record the deed because the county offices here in Michigan are closed. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of really weird, bizarro stuff. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, from uh, a personal I want to jump in on that point real quick, because one thing that I'm seeing is that the buyers themselves still want to perform. What's mm -hmm. actually holding people up right now is just the ability to perform. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, either the title company or a lender is shut down or the, the people can't get to the office to actually do their job. But everybody still wants to perform status quo, like everything's still moving. So I think yeah. that's a that's a positive that I don't think enough people are talking about. So anyways, there's yeah, no and I, and I think really smart people want to hit the pause button and see right. how how much it affects it, too. So we have, you know, one buyer on a 40 million dollar deal and they've got. 500 grand non-refundable and you know if I'm in their shoes you know maybe I walk away I mean you know they got basically a 1.2 percent deposit on a 40 million dollar deal and three months from now they might be able to pick up the same caliber of properties for 32 million you know right. so that's a savings of eight and if they have to lose five hundred thousand dollars to save 7.5 million I'd make that trade all day long right so that's a decision they're faced with from our standpoint we don't really care. We're, we're reluctant sellers anyway. You know, we are kind of like, I got seller's remorse as bad as I have buyer's remorse. And I say, that's the position you want to work to get yourself in, in life. You want to get to a position where you're very low leverage, where you've got good reserves on the sidelines, where you can withstand any kind of, you know, uh, I call it temporary setbacks, real estate experience, temporary setbacks. Some of them last longer than others. Um, you know, this one isn't going to last as long. I just don't think it will. I think, right. um, you know, from the standpoint of getting back to normal, yeah, there'll be some defaults, there'll be whatever, but I just somehow don't feel that this is going to snowball into like, you know, some major whatever. I think you're going to see a lot of different things come out in this, in this 
category, you know, in terms of how people behave. You're going to see a, a lot of poor behavior and you're going to see some exemplary behavior. We're trying to be on that exemplary side. We want to, you know, work with our tenants. You know, if they need a month or two of relief, great. We'd like to get something back for it, maybe a, a longer lease term on the back end, something like that. So on a case-by-case -case basis, we've developed a, a letter to send to them that says, hey, we're in this with you. We're all in this together. Um, we want you to understand that, you know, properties are expensive to run. We have mortgage payments. We have taxes. We have insurance. We have maintenance. We have utilities. We have all these expenses also. So if you don't pay us, we can't pay those. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a little room. We hope you do. Um, but, you know, in order for us to get any relief with our lenders, which, you know, we haven't approached them or anything yet on, but if we end up getting there, you know, we need to document that you've provided us with and we ask for a list of things. You know, what's your business income and expense look like, your balance sheet, you know, things like that. So even if you have residential homes, if you have tenants that are saying, I can't pay rent this month, I still say, well, send me your last two, three months bank statements, send me documentation of this or that or anything, not in a mean way, like, you know, right. what, I'm not giving you this or that. I think it's more along the lines of saying, look, we can't do this for everybody. We've got to have some verification of this stuff. We've got to, you know, um, we're here to help. We'll do anything we can. But by the transitive property, if we're going to take this situation and try and recoup any breaks from our lender, they're not going to give us the money. They're not going to say, hey, just don't pay us. Right. But what they might do is defer the interest and add it on. What they might do is whatever. You know, we all want to survive. We all want to go back to where we were. Everybody wants to get there. Let's just find the best way to all get there together. That's kind of how we're operating through this. Um, I think smart people will, uh, in, in on some transactions, like I think our buyer on our on our primary asset that's supposed to close next week, they'd be dumb not to close. It's a class A asset in a class A town. I think, um, you know, if I was uh, doing a monster deal and I had a relatively small percentage of it down as a deposit, I might consider saying, you know what, I'm, you know, whether or not I try and claw right. that deposit back through some kind of, you know, legal remedy. I don't know. I don't really have time for that. Um, I might even um, like we have, deals we're in the middle of also on the on the buy side or the the funding side and we're saying look guys we still want to do the deal but we need 60 days you know we were going to put our 20 million in on let's say april 30th you know let's push that back to may 30th and realistically it's probably gonna be june 30th and they're saying well wait we got to close the land we got to close the land i'm like well go to the landowner and ask him if he really wants to start over from scratch or if he's willing to give you 60 days this is exactly crazy time right like Let's just everybody kick, everybody kick the can one time. And then you know, I, I keep using the, the term unprecedented because I, I think that's the best way to describe what we're going through. I think it's very easy for people to go back to like 2008 and say, <clears throat> are we experiencing something similar to that? But the answer is no, because that was a totally different reason as to why we were going into that, that crash. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been through a number of these kinds of things, I guess, right. in my lifetime. I'm turning 50 this year. And it's, um, you know, I guess I wasn't really paying that close attention to it in 87 because it didn't really affect me right. personally, you know. And, um, you know, but 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 one thing I've always done is I've always, you know, in reading about various historical events, I've, um, I've always thought like, oh, it'd be so cool, you know, for, at least for a little while. <laughs> 
to go back and live during say world war two or in medieval times when it took right. me like, you know, four days traveling a cobblestone road on my horse to get to my buddy's house where I'm staying in taverns and drinking ale, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, I just have these uh, romanticizing these periods of time when there was no electricity or, or whatever, or uh, one of them being the Spanish flu epidemic, you know, which didn't really originate in Spain, but that's where one of the biggest outbreaks was. So, right. you know, got labeled the Spanish flu, but, but I read a letter from um, F. Scott Fitzgerald that he wrote during, uh, well, he was on quarantine in the south of France um, during the Spanish flu epidemic. And I swear to God, it could have been written yesterday by somebody. I mean, and he, he, he references, references Hemingway and how Hemingway won't go on quarantine. He's too manly and bravado. <laughs> and he's, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's really interesting. And so, you, you know, I, I, last week I might've canceled this, to be honest with you. Last week I was in a bit of a funk. I was in the panic phase. I was like, Oh right. my gosh, the world's coming to an end, whatever. I mean, it was, I, um, it took me a little while and I just, I hit pause and I said, you know, I'm just not going to do anything. And I, I really, I worked in the yard a lot last week. I didn't pay attention. So there really wasn't a lot I could do. Every time I tried to get out in front of it, I was behind it. And it was like, this is dumb. It's like trying to catch a falling knife. You know, you just, mm -hmm. you can't do it. And so I'm letting it drop and I'm saying, all right, now whatever. And, and I, I got to say today, I feel great. I'm like, you know, you only live once, right? We might as well right. live in really interesting times. And, and, you know, I just, I have, I have faith in the capitalistic structure. I have faith in people will figure out how to get more toilet paper if they need right. it. I, I think, you know, they'll, they'll find food. Um, you know, I've got people I can call who know how to shoot deer and there's plenty of them <laughs> around here. So, you know, um, but yeah, I think, you know, uh, this is totally different. I think it'll be a lot more short lived. I think the economic effects of it will last for a while, but it's not going to crater. No smart owner of real estate is going to panic sell their real estate. And I don't think banks are going to force anybody to do that either. Right. Um, you know, I know people that have purchased things recently. They've used high leverage you know, the lenders are going to hit pause because nobody wants to take that stuff back. And in six months time, you know, we're going to be out of space again. I mean, that's where we were. This was not a supply demand issue. This was not an economic issue. We were a little frothy on valuations, I think everywhere. Um, but if you were getting a fair deal on a piece of real estate, it's still a fair deal on a piece of real estate. Now, if you were overpaying, this is a good excuse to say, right. wait a minute, maybe I was overpaying. Like the stock market, same thing. You know, I think that was way overvalued. It's gotten kicked in the teeth. Um, you know what? Look at it. It's coming back, you know, madly. I'm trying not to pay much attention to it. I don't have any <laughs> money in there anyway. But, um, you know, that's that. That's my, my two cents on it. Yeah. I, I digress you know quite what? a bit. But You talking about living in interesting times and and wishing you know for four days you could go back and live during one of those times right we you never actually know that you're living through a piece of history until it's either happening and you're like holy cow this is you know this is groundbreaking historic moment or it's over right and we don't know how this is going to be remembered i mean this could totally be like over in the next couple of months and then it's just kind of like hey remember when that crazy coronavirus happened and it shut us down for a couple of months the economic impact will always be there, but is it going to be remembered? And I'm kind of like you. Hey, you know, my message to people is pay attention to what you can con control right now and, and buckle down and use the time that's available for us to kind of really reevaluate where you are as a company, 
as an individual, spend more time with your family. Like you said, there you are at your, your new house, you know, spending time with, with your family and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's just kind of been great. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's opened up our, our ability to kind of reevaluate where we are as, as business owners and as individuals and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. And, you know, for me personally, I was already at a place where I wanted to sell all of our assets anyways, um, because I felt like we were buying at the top of the market and I felt like there was going to be a correction anyways. So this has only ramped up my ability to sell those assets and, and, you know, we'll, we'll rebuild where I thought the correction was already going to happen anyway. So I appreciate you sharing your insight there and talking about that. And, um, you know, hopefully that helped out some of the, the listeners there. Um, you previously brought up your book. I want to make sure people know where's the best place that they can find your book and, and purchase that. Um, I, you can get it on Amazon. It's, um, it's called do the work once get paid forever. How, uh, rich people invest in real estate or how, how smart people invest in real estate, something like that. Um, <laughs> it, it's not really designed to be a bestseller. It's a tool, you know, it's, yep. it's specific to, um, you know, the industry and a, a specific use. Um, I do have another one I'm working on that um, if I ever get around to getting it out would be more, I think, beneficial. It's more of the, you know, how I got here type story that I, I just want to share with people because I get an awful lot of, um, and, and one thing I did want to circle back to is you mentioned about, you know, how do you learn these things or do these things and what's a safe way to do that? Right. Um, there's a pattern I've noticed amongst some people that are very successful. They learn off of other people's mistakes um, and, or by watching other successful people as well. And then they, 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 uh, they, they basically copy it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I'm no different. Um, and I have, so, so I was a broker and got a ton of experience watching other people do deals and then see how they run the numbers. And I asked a ton of questions and learned a lot through that process as a broker. That's, to me, that was the best way to get, I never wanted to be a real estate person, you know, forever, but I learned how to sell. I learned about deals. I learned how to negotiate everything over a refrigerator, you know, stuff like that, preserve my own commission and fees. I mean, there was so much there that, and so if you're young and you have the ability to do it, getting your real estate license and cutting your teeth as a, as a real estate agent is, is a phenomenal way to do it. Um, I have another, I've had a number of uh, people come work for me, um, even for free there, uh, you know, I had one guy that worked for me for three years for free while his wife was here in town, um, uh, completing her residency, um, at university of Michigan. And so, and, and, and I knew he was going to leave. Otherwise I would have definitely tried to make him a permanent employee. Um, and I ended up paying him something, you know, like a few grand a month after a while, because he was, he was digging into deals for me and finding opportunities for us. And, you know, I, I think there were some bonuses when we found things that, you know, or he found things that made sense, but, you know, he basically came in saying, look, I'll work for free. I, I, I did that when I started out in life. Also, the first guy I worked for said I was too young for the job of um, being the, a sales agent in a golf course community. And I said, look, I'll work for free you don't even have to pay me. I just want to, you know, learn. He said, well, I'll give you $10 an hour. And I was like, great, you know, and, and then, you know, within three months I was selling everything in sight and I was making, you know, plenty of money, but it was, um, you know, so, so he, the funny thing about, um, about Drew who came to work for me for, for 
three years. And then, you know, he moved back home to Louisiana. And now he does exactly what I do. Um, he started a syndication practice and he, you know, I, he called me, he said, Hey, do you have a, a PPM, a subscription? Do you mind if I use one? I said, yeah, here, take it. You know, right. here's what I did when I started. I edited one from somebody else. I filled in all the blanks. Then I just asked an attorney, Hey, will you be my attorney? And just, you know, charge me to review this, which might be, you know, a few hundred dollars as opposed to creating it, which might be five grand, knowing that as I grow, I'm not going to have time to sit here and edit every deal. And I still have the same attorney that did that for me, you know, years and years ago. And now he gets, I don't know what we pay him a year, but I could easily afford a full-time attorney because right. I don't have the time to sit here and draft all these documents all the time. You know, so we probably, he's probably making a hundred grand a year in attorney fees, you know, off of us. And, you know, we're thrilled because we don't right. have to hire somebody and have them in our office. And, 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 and frankly, you know, uh, we'd probably have to pay more than that. So it's, um, but yeah, it's worked out really well. And I think building your team out like that, where you get people willing to, you know, kind of do some things um, on a pro bono, not, not completely free, but, you know, you negotiate uh, some concessions in order to get the long-term benefit. And then, you know, it's important to remain loyal to those people, right? Because they helped you get where you are. So, so there you go. To all the listeners, I'm going to simplify that real quick. Moral of the story is, if you want to break into this, go work for John for free for three years <laughs> or just give him a lot of money, and then you can learn that way. That's the best way to do this. Um, final question. It's the most important question of all, okay? You're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? Mm -hmm. Are you a Michigan fan? Of course I'm a Michigan fan. Okay, yeah. cool. I grew I, up I had in to, Ann Arbor. I had to ask because my partner, Cassie, she grew up in Northwest Ohio. She, you know, she loves Michigan more than anything. Can't stand Ohio State. And, and I heard you say that you bought these houses, you know, in South Bend by Notre Dame. And I just, I wanted to ask, like, did you paint them all maize and blue just to piss everybody <laughs> off in South Bend? No, we actually, we actually painted them all Notre Dame colors and doubled the rent. <laughs> hey, hey, there you go you put your own pride aside and, and made money we doubled the rent on those Notre Dame <laughs> Irish fans those Lou Holtz loving whatever yeah. anyway no we're uh we're huge if uh Cassie wants to come into town for a game make sure she gets a hold oh of man she'll, she'll be hitting you up stadium. here in about 30 yeah. minutes now with that request right there <laughs> she she loves she loves Michigan man and uh I think the best day of her life was the first day she ever went to a game in the big house. So um, yeah, good we, times, um, man. We, we, we hit every game. We have a big tailgate we put on. It's um, it's a load of fun. I actually went to university of Arizona just cause I grew up in Ann Arbor and it was a good change of pace, but my friends at Arizona, my, especially my uh, fraternity brothers there would always give me such a hard time. Right. A few times Michigan played Arizona in basketball. I was rooting for Michigan and they're right. like, what's wrong with you, dude? You go to Arizona. I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. If you grew up in Ann Arbor or, you know, if you grew up in Michigan, I mean, my son's cursed now too. He cries when they lose, you know, it's terrible. <laughs> and, and, you know, we haven't beaten Ohio State, I think, since he was born. So, right, right. You it's know, been, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Bad. So, but, you know, so I grew up in a house, you know, that we, I, I was literally told that we bleed burnt orange and we were Texas Longhorns. Like, that's what we were. And, I didn't realize until like I was in high school that even though my dad was a part of what's called the Texas X's that he didn't go to the university of Texas. <laughs> like he went to the university of Texas in Arlington, that's UTA. And then I realized, 
wait, UTA is the Mavericks. Like they're a whole <laughs> different school. And he's like, yeah, it's the university of Texas though. So I'm, I'm a longhorn. So. <laughs> and then, and then I didn't go to Texas either. I went to North Texas to stay close to home. And, but I'm the same way, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm a longhorn. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that is. It's just, we, that's what we were taught, you know? So yeah, it's all programming. Right. What so, well, John, thank you so much for taking the time with us and, you know, sharing your wisdom, you know, and, and, and talking about the current events of where we are today with the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, I, I hope this episode helps people, you know, realize, hey, there's a, a ton of bigger and better opportunities out there, you know, to move on from the single family world. Um, sometimes it can feel like a whirlwind. There's a lot of chaos in, in this industry. And uh, like you said, the, the problems are, are very similar what you're doing. You're just playing with bigger dollars and, and bigger profit at the end of the day. So yeah. thank you so much, John. Uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? No, I'm good. Thanks, RJ. Appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. We'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault. Titanium Vault.